This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted, and today I'm joined by Professor John Orkut, one of our resident business and securities law experts. Welcome to the show. Hey, AJ. So you, you threw this my way, and I, I thought that was perfect to, to talk about, is the uh, Trump Organization tax lawsuit. Um, from a super high level, if, if the audience isn't aware of what's going on, what is the Trump uh, Organization being uh, hit with criminal uh, liability for? They are being uh, hit with criminal liability or charged with criminal liability for um, not treating as income various payments made to um, uh, the former CFO of the Trump Organization, as well as a few other individuals at uh, the Trump Organization. And, and Trump Organization's uh, now, I'm assuming former CFO Alan uh, Weisberg. correct? Yes, right. He's um, no longer the CFO. You can't have uh, somebody who is uh, who has pled guilty to a felony serving as your CFO. That's it's correct. Frowned upon a little bit. Um, so, and he pled guilty to 15 counts involving tax fraud, and that that's substantial. Correct. And just so you know what the the what's going on here, and I'll say in many ways, like there's it has some similarities to the case that was recently filed by the attorney general um, regarding a lot of valuation issues where at first glance, it appears to be a very complicated case. There's lots of things going on. And it's very difficult, I think, for the general public to really appreciate in either of these cases, how how simple most of the legal issues are um, and why, like, for example, the the case against Weisselberg and the fact that he eventually pled guilty, it was a really it's a, honestly it's a very black and white, simple case. There's not a lot to argue about in this particular case. Um, the the Trump organization treated as uh, not income certain fringe benefits that were given to uh, to Weisselberg, as well as to certain other individuals, the general rule is that fringe benefits are are income ta- are they are income and taxable as income, subject to a few exceptions. And all of the fringe benefits that he was receiving were really classic ones that do not fit into any of the exceptions. Period. And it's not one where there's well, there's a discretion. We could look at this from a slightly different angle. Not really. These were all really black and white. It's complicated enough that you can shout and yell, witch hunt, the tax code's really complicated. You just don't understand all the details here. It's easy to say that. It's really not true, though. Yeah. And that's kind of the way the Trump organization and Donald Trump personally has responded anytime there's any sort of financial dispute with his companies or uh, how he's handling the money and how much money actually is existing within his various companies. It's, this isn't terribly shocking when you look at his business practices. Yeah. And I want to say, like, I'm not trying to be a, a, you know, a basher of the the former president in this particular case. Like, this is one where, like, I feel like I'm just... I'm serving as an umpire and I'm just calling balls and strikes 
on this particular issue. So like, for example, like, you know, something many of the listeners probably have heard about is the infamous um, IRS audit of uh, the former president's taxes that goes back, I don't know, like 10 years, I believe at this point that involved um, a write-off. It was a, it was a tax loss deduction that, um, that he claimed for roughly $700 million that involved his, um, the failed uh, Taj Mahal Atlantic City Casino. Um, that's actually an issue that is up for debate as to whether or not he was allowed to take that tax deduction. Um, and it's that's that's a much more technical issue. And it's one we could we could get into debate as to whether he should have been allowed to take the deduction now from my understanding of the facts. I don't think the deduction was appropriate, but there's a very reasoned argument on the other side as to why, well, it could be uh, appropriate, you know, maybe, and maybe the facts are a little bit different than as has been reported. That's for me. What we're talking about here, it's, there's really nothing to debate on this particular issue. Um, the, the fringe benefits that were given out were um, the Trump organization paying for an apartment that, uh, Weisselberg and his wife lived in. That's there's there's no exception for that. That is that's income. And you can just think about it as if that wasn't income, what would you expect would happen for every large corporation and their highest income individuals? Don't write me the check, pay my rent instead, and then that'll be free. That'll be tax free income for me. And then the other big one, uh, the other there were two other big ones was for uh, free use of a uh, of a car. So they paid for his car. Um, a company can pay for your car if you're using your car solely for uh, for business uses. Then that would not be income to you. That's what is a working condition fringe, but. Once I start using that car for personal usage, the personal usage part of the car, that's income for me. It seems like it's just laziness and um, just like, oh, here, I have some money sort of situations as opposed to just putting things on the books appropriately. Is that accurate? So I, and, and I would say like, and one of the reasons, again, where like if I wanted to sow confusion, you can. And the, the the last big benefit they gave was the Trump organization paid for the tuition for certain family members. Um, and that's even one like I would spin it and go like, oh, my, so so you're going to say now we are committed a criminal act for doing something nice, like paying for somebody's tuition. Now, one of the things the tax code is incredibly clear about. An employer, if an employer provides a gift to its employees, that gift is taxable. No, normally, so like if you, because I know you're a super generous person, if you were to say, John, I'm going to give you a check for $5,000 just because you like me, that would be great. That's a gift. That's not taxable to me. When I receive a gift from somebody as the recipient, I'm not taxed. The one exception or the one big exception is when your employer gives you a gift, because again, if employers were allowed to give gifts, what would they would do? My bonus at the end of the year is a gift. I'm going to do it as a gift. Now it's not taxable. So employers can't do that. Um, I don't think it's laziness, sloppiness. I think it is, you know, if I'm just, because it's always hard to get into the mind of anybody. Yeah. I do think that it is just a pushing the envelope 
And then eventually you start pushing the envelope in a way that you're just so far over the line. You're actually not pushing the envelope anymore. You are blatantly committing fraud, um, which again, like if, assuming all of the facts are correct in the indictment that was filed, um, which I would assume is pretty easy for the government, like all of those are very easy things to go and track and to get paperwork and to show, look, you made these payments. Um you know, this is, you know, your classic fraud case. And I'm not surprised at all that Weisselberg uh, pled guilty. And then Monday is they're supposed to start um, jury selection for the case against uh, the Trump organization. How did this come to light? Like, were, like was somebody caught with, with evading the, like Weisselberg not filing his taxes appropriately or something to that effect? You know, honestly, I don't know. Like, I don't know where this came up. And, you know, there is always the risk that this came up as a result of politics, which I do think like that, I think, is horrible. Right. If it is that because you are getting involved in politics at a high level now, you you know, we start having a different level of scrutiny. I'm not sure that is that is appropriate, although the judge in this particular case has said very clearly that. Uh, arguments of selective prosecution are not going to be accepted in the trial. Um, And I will just say personally, I think that is the correct outcome here because this is such like, this is such like base level fraud that is just not acceptable from businesses. You know, it's, it's not as if we've got a tax regulator or a tax auditor sitting over and looking at the CFO's decisions every time they file a piece of paperwork. Every business, their tax return is going to be function, you know, a function of thousands to potentially billions of transactions. At some point, we have to believe that people have a certain level of honesty when they're when they're when they're putting together their tax returns. Um, and this is just such a blatant type of of fraud. Um, I, you know, you you do hope that that's it, or I hope I shouldn't say you. I hope that this gets punished accordingly. So let, let's play what ifs. I, I'm sure it's something you hate for me to even say, but <laughs> it, it there's there's many investigations into Trump and his organizations and such. It's very sure. obvious. There's many things over decades where he's been investigated for various financial reasons and real estate deals and such. What if there was a case like this that was brought up that initially was brought to light because they're picking at him uh, because of political motivations? Would those charges be able to to carry through or does that kind of go into some other – obviously, it would be unethical, but it, it seems like a dangerous uh, direction that kind of breeds cronyism. Yeah. So like, I mean, it's some of you start getting into, you know, constitutional issues there of, you know, equal protection and due process. And I have to admit, you know, I'm not I'm not the constitutional law professor. So like getting into those kinds of what ifs I, that I, I I don't I don't really know. But I will just say again, like just to kind of picture as to like how how blatant this fraud is. And it's the, the that's I really would like to make that like really clear Um that doesn't always necessarily feel that way. Cause like what this case is about is fringe benefits not being properly classified as income. Like, so like they at the, the core, that doesn't seem very exciting. Right. And, you know, companies make mistakes. Sometimes they misclassify things. Um, I, the way if I was to do an analogy, so, you know, we live and operate here in Concord and we have 
a downtown area where you have to pay for parking, right? You get your little parking meters. And if you don't pay for parking, well, I think it's like a $15 fine if you don't pay for parking. And sometimes I have to admit, there have been occasions where I've gone downtown and I should have gotten a parking pass and I didn't and I parked. Every once in a while, you get caught and you get a $15 fine. Now, and this really is just like not a big deal. Like, and that's not a criminal activity. That's just, it's an administrative fine. It's not a big deal. This goes way beyond that. To me, like this, and the dollar amounts are not huge, especially for an organization the size of Trump organization, but the blatant behavior is so bad. To, again, analogy-wise, so like when I, if I was to park illegally downtown, that's a $15 offense. If I was to walk into one of the stores downtown and I was to go, you know what? I want this pair of socks, $15. I don't want to pay for it. And I take the pair of socks and I just walk out. Now, it's a $15 offense. That's bad. I stole. And I stole in a very blatant manner that you don't go, well, it's $15. And I think even to really sort of perfect this analogy, I can afford $15 socks. This is I'm not a case of, well, I am, I'm in a destitute state and I need these socks for my child who's sick. And we could get into those. This, I can easily afford a $15 pair of socks. I just don't want to pay it. So I grab the $15 socks and walk out. That's really bad behavior. And I would expect if I were to engage in that behavior that the district attorney for the city would be, punishing me more severely than a regular individual because the behavior is really at that point so bad. And that's what, what we're really looking at with um, the tax fraud cases. Um, you know, the, the valuation cases that are, are, that is just getting started has some similarity to that. Um, and also some differences. It's not as clear cut as the, the tax case is the most clear cut. So what's this going to mean for the Trump organization if um, they get found guilty in this case? Well, if they're convicted of a felony, I can imagine it's going to create a lot of difficulties for them. The biggest difficulty would be to the extent that they have any loan agreements out there that have as a requirement of the loan that the 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 the, the recipient of the loan is not um, is not a felon. Like that's a very common clause to have. And, you know, I haven't, you know, I have not read any of the loan agreements. So it's possible that this is not in any of the loan agreements, but I would expect at least some of them would have a clause in there that says, if you're convicted of a felony, your loan is immediately due. So you got to repay your loan immediately, which means you got to go out and refinance it's going to be hard to refinance because many lenders will have as an internal policy. We don't lend to organizations that have been convicted of felonies because that's rare, mm-hmm. right? There are not a lot of large organizations that are getting these this size loans that have ever been convicted of a felony. Um, like you probably remember, you know, Enron had to shut down once they had once they had their felony conviction on them, they could no longer operate as a uh, uh, you know, as a, as a, a certified uh, uh, public accountant, um, you know, I would expect this would be really bad for the Trump organization. And, and loans are basically how these multi-million dollar companies operate. They they move money around. They take out loans to get new real estate, especially with, with Trump organizations and things like that. Yeah. Now, the one thing I would say that is that they did a bunch of refinancing actually as a result of the $250 million lawsuit uh, brought by 
um, the attorney general for the state of New York, though that lawsuit was not, I don't think it was a surprise. That investigation was going on for a long time as a result of things that came out during the investigation. Deutsche Bank uh, ended up uh, you know, effectively saying we're calling all the loans to the Trump organization. So they've already gone through a major refinancing back in, I think it was in May. Um, they knew the Weisselberg case was already on file. Weisselberg, I don't believe he had actually uh, um, uh, pled guilty at that point, but they had noticed that when they were refinancing a huge chunk of their loans, I would have expect I would expect if I had been their lawyer when you're refinancing, you're going to make sure there's no felony conviction trigger on there. So it, maybe it's not that bad. Is there any legal exposure for Donald Trump personally as being the person in charge of the company? So on any of this, you know, it could be. And like the 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 issue that's going to end up being at the trial, I don't think the issue is going to be did this occur. I think that's going to be the that's going to be yes. Um, the issue is going to be who did it. So is it? Did Weisselberg operate as a rogue agent who did all of this? And he's effectively, he's the one who was being dishonest. He was doing this. Nobody else knew. And not only was he cheating the the public by not paying his appropriate amount of taxes, he was cheating Trump organization by acting as a rogue agent. If that's, you know, I would think that's one argument that could be made. I don't know how strong that argument is or how believable it is. That argument could be made because the key issue is going to be is intent. Did the Trump organization know about it? Did they intend to commit fraud? How long do you expect the trial to run? Like when when might we have a, a uh, the end of this? Yeah, I'm not a litigator, so I'm not good at those <laughs> kinds of predictions. But I, like, honestly, I don't expect this. This should not be a long trial. Like, this isn't something that's going to be really complicated and it's going to take us six months to go through the fact. I, I mean, really, you're looking at a couple of weeks. Um, and again, right now, uh, jury selection is still, at least the last I looked, it's still set for uh, for Monday. There's been no announcement that that's, uh, that that's going to be delayed. And in fact, the judge was very clear when motions were made by the Trump organization um, earlier to push off the trial uh the judge said no well we'll keep our eyes open for what happens with that professor john orkett thank you so much for joining me all right thanks aj thanks for listening to the legal impact presented by unh franklin pierce school of law to help spread word about the show please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform including apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and spotify get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast